You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It's Matt back at you with another episode. If you enjoyed episode 126 with David Allen, getting things done, work less, be free, feel zen with the productivity expert himself, you are going to love this episode because he is back. Really excited for you to share this and just wanted to ask one quick favor of you all. If you have been part of the Live Different community and gotten value out of any of these podcasts, I would love if you took a real quick second to just scroll down on iTunes and give me a rating of five stars. Don't even bother reviewing it. That would take you too much time and I want you to be super productive today. But if you could just scroll down real quick and just tap five stars, that would be great. It literally takes 10 seconds and it would help me out tremendously. I am trying to grow this podcast, as you guys all know, continue to try to do a good thing in this world and uh, really want more people to be able to discover this content. So I would really appreciate that. If you have any questions, if there's anything I can do for you, please let me know. Matt Wilson TV on Instagram, uh, on Twitter as well. Would love to connect with you. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you guys listening, being part of this amazing community. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today I'm here with none other than David Allen. David was episode number 126, Work Less, Be Free, and Feel Zen with Getting Things Done Productivity Expert. David Allen, as I just said, a few fun facts. Forbes has recognized him as one of the top five executive coaches in the United States. Business 2.0 Magazine included him on his list of 50 who matter now. Time Magazine called Getting Things Done the definitive business self-help book of the decade. And Fast Company Magazine called David one of the world's most influential thinkers. So I don't think I need to go on any further than that. Uh, David, it's great to have you back on. Hi, Matt. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation again. How do you live up to these type of introductions? That's some pretty good press that they're saying out there about you. I tried to hide and slip away. Call who is that masked man? You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm, uh, I'm sure you're blushing over there. This is that's yeah. great. Yeah. Who who knew? A bit bemusing that I sort of wound up with all of those titles, and it could be because I'd never had a traditional course in psychology, business, or time management in my life. Wow. And so I came up with all this kind of with raw bones from the very beginning, and right just from the street. Well, what are the things that really work? You know, and all of those things try to address, but those things can very easily lose contact with their feet on the ground and their head in the, in the sky, you know, pretty easily. So I guess one of the reasons is that my stuff, I wound up, and it took me 20 years, Matt, to figure out that what I'd figured out was unique, and then nobody else seemed to have figured that out, and that it was bulletproof. That's when I wrote the book, Getting Things Done, because I figured I'd better write the manual. So I think maybe because it was a unique approach called no preconditioning about what these things were about that maybe, you know, put it on the map. Excellent. Well, I know we were chatting offline a little bit and in our last discussion, we we discussed everything from Zen and your philosophy on life to a couple burning questions that I had as a follower of the GTD 
method. But this time around, I'm excited to dive in in a couple different ways. And one, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your story that you just alluded to. You just figured this out kind of on your own and developed this methodology, proved to yourself and I'm sure to a lot of other people around you that it worked. And then you went and wrote the book and got all these places saying nice things about you. Uh, So could you just maybe briefly tell the audience where you come from and uh, share your actual story with us? Yeah, well, I'll give you a a relatively short version of a very long story. (laughs) Sure. You know, after 35 jobs, you know, I thought I was going to be in academia. I was studying American intellectual history, decided I wanted my own enlightenment instead of studying people who had theirs. So I hopped out of graduate school because I didn't think that was where I was going to find it. And then started to just go on my own personal exploration, you know, mostly a self-exploration. You know, how do I find out who I am, what this is all about, what's making the universe work? You know, God, truth, and the and the universe was sort of my intention and inclination. So, got involved with the martial arts because I'd been intrigued by sort of the Zen aspect of life. Even since I was in high school, I read you know most of Alan Watts and, and Suzuki, and got very intrigued by that. And someone offered to teach me karate. They met me. They sort of interested in sort of helping me out in my own growth. And they you know had were basically a, a sensei, a, a teacher of the martial arts. So they offered to teach me. And I said, well, that's fascinating. I said, well, let me go explore that. And that awakened me to a whole new level of sort of personal experience. I'd never been that athletic before. I, yeah, I played tennis when I was in high school, but you know, not that much. So that was intriguing to do a deep dive and wind up you know, getting a black belt in karate myself. That also taught me a lot about clear head. Because there's a lot in the martial arts about clearing your head, clearing space, so that you are, you know, open to your intuition and open to, you know, four people jump you in a dark alley. You don't want to have anything distracting you in your head. And there were very specific exercises, you know, focus on your breathing, which is now a key element of the mindfulness movement that's going on. But I learned that, you know, 45 years ago. So I started to explore all of that. At the same time, they weren't paying people to go explore themselves <laughs> in rice bowl and cave weren't my particular interest. You know, I like good looking women and Chardonnay and, you know, and other kinds of things of life here. And so I started to sort of get attracted to how do I stay clear, you know, and how do, what are techniques that help me get clear and free internally? So I'm not distracted or, you know, wrapped around some worry or anxiousness or whatever that then, you know, limited my abilities. And so I began an exploration or I certainly continued an exploration of a lot of personal best practices that allowed me to keep straight and clear, especially, you know, as I started my own consulting practice, because, you know, that's all you do. If you have 35 professions that don't know what you want to do, then you hang out your shingle and you become a consultant. So I got very interested in both for myself personally, but also what were good models that could help clients. You know, they started out small businesses and people in my network that I could do project work with and, and so forth. But mostly I'd come in and see what they were doing and say, God, there'd be a lot easier way to do this. And now they call that process improvement. I just said, I'm lazy. Can't we do this easier? And then I would help, I'd help them improve whatever they were doing. And then I get bored, you know, got onto cruise control and go, okay. So they got bored and wound up leaving and finding another job. Then I discovered they pay people to do that. They call them consultants. So I was into sort of process improvement. I couldn't have named that back then, but that was how I got started in, in all of that. And then started discovering these techniques for myself about how do I keep a clear head as my life is getting more complex found techniques one by one that started to work for me that were 
inspirational to me. Go, wow, that's really cool. That makes this a lot easier. And I don't have to worry about that. I can clear my head, you know, et cetera. And then I turned around and started using those techniques with my clients and it produced exactly the same results. More clarity, more control, more focus, more ability to stay focused on the meaningful stuff. And I went, well, that's cool. So that was sort of the seed or the, the germ of my own, you know, sort of little boutique consulting practice. And then I had a guy, head of human resources for a big corporation show up and he said, wow, David, our whole company needs more control, more focus, more, you know, more all of that stuff. Can you design something? some sort of a workshop or seminar around your methodology. So I said, okay. So I worked with his team, you know, for a couple of months and I designed a two day personal productivity training and we did a pilot program for a thousand executives and managers in this big corporation and it worked. And I found myself thrust into the corporate training world. Who knew, you know, as an American history major in Berkeley in 1968, you could have fooled me that that's where I would wind up. But I, wound up doing that. And that was 1983-84. So then I just kept following my nose and wound up just by referral. Never did any marketing, never did any. All I did was pick up the phone because people would refer other people. They'd go through this and go, wow, this is great. You know, my wife or my husband works in this other company. They need this. They would call me. And I started to just have build a reputation, you know, just personally anyway, around the, in the corporate training world. But I was also working with small businesses and entrepreneurs and individual contributors and so forth. And a lot of my consulting just turned into coaching for a lot of senior people within these companies that wanted me to work with them personally on this methodology. So that's where I spent thousands of hours, you know, one-on-one desk side, but some of the busiest and brightest and best folks you'd ever meet, but that were very interested in getting more space for themselves. And that's how all this got sort of refined. This is from 1983 up to, you know, the end of the 1990s when I decided finally to write the book, you know, having discovered, gee, nobody else has figured this out. I guess I better write the manual. And once I did that, this thing started to hit a nerve globally because very soon that became, surprised me, but it became a bestseller. And getting things done was translated then into 28 languages and, you know, and sort of spread around the world. And so the, the world started knocking on our door called, wow, you know, can I be your distributor? Can I be your consultant in the Ukraine or in Thailand or in, you know, South Africa? And, and so and I didn't know how to really manage all that. So that's been a long process since the book was written. You know, like, gosh, now the first edition was like 18 years ago now. But that sort of hit a nerve, and it's kept spreading since then. So it's become this sort of global movement. Wow, okay. That's really interesting. And, and of course, I know you had your new edition that came out in 2015. I read the new edition. I had read years and years ago. I had read Getting Things Done, and then I had heard about the new edition and almost downloaded it immediately as so many tools have changed and you wanted to write this for the 21st century. And yes, just there's just so much that we're inundated with these days. And we could go on, of course, forever about that. But I wanted to ask you about this kind of dichotomy where, you know, you were a student of Zen and karate and hanging out in Berkeley and then being thrust into the corporate world as a corporate trainer. So I'm curious how you maintain that balance when you're looking at two things that are pretty opposites. Well, one way I, that, that worked for me, it was because 
much like a Trojan horse. I knew that what I had wound up coming up with as a model actually touched very deep chords inside of who we are, why we're here, what we're really about. Because a lot of what we're about is completion and creation. We're here to complete things we put in motion, and we're here to then be accountable for where we put our creative energy. And in a way, I just found a way to make that something that could translate into time management, could translate into priority management, could translate into productivity, could translate into a lot of things. So I didn't have to then denigrate my own internal deep sense of the truth of who we are and how we are and what we're here to do. I didn't have to then convince anybody at any of those more subtle levels. All I had to do is walk up to them, pick up a piece of paper on their desk and say, what is that? What are you going to do with that? Why is that here? You know, what's your action? What outcome are you committed to do about that? And in almost instantly, sort of very subtly, but almost instantly throw people back into the driver's seat. Instead of having that piece of paper yelling at them, do something with me, decide about me, I put them in the driver's seat. And they started to get control of these little things around them. And so what I found was this magical formula that at whatever level people decided to implement this would take them to a whole new level of their own experience. So how cool is that? Right? And cool. so, yeah, and they were willing to pay me good money to do this. So, you know, what the heck, you know, sort of perfect storm, right? Yeah, that sounds like best case scenario to me. And before the interview, I was catching up a little bit on the Getting Things Done podcast. And one of the talks that you had given recently was the power of outcome thinking. And the idea that you just presented was talking about, all right, what do people want out of their lives? And then how can they accomplish it here with probably the least amount of stress and frantic behavior as possible? And I'd love if you could elaborate a little bit more on this concept of outcome thinking. Well, first of all, let's talk about productivity. People go, oh, I want productivity. You are already productive. Matt, you're being productive right now. You're producing questions. You're producing this podcast. Everybody's already producing exactly what they're getting, what they're experiencing, and what their current results are. And anybody listening to this, look around. You know, you've produced this, whatever it is you're in, you know, your personal experience or the, the environment you're in. And it's whatever is around you there that, that you call yours. So everybody's already productive. Usually when people say, I want more productivity, what they're really talking about is maybe I should be focused on different things that will produce different results. Or I've already decided what I want to produce, but I need to do them with less effort you know, and more class and elegance. So either one, and it could be both. When people say, I want to be productive, they're usually saying, I want to be more productive, which means I want to produce better, more quality results than I may be focused on right now and or I need to be able to get there faster, easier, you know, with less effort and more sustainable. So in that sense, this is really about the efficiency. Efficiency has gotten a bad rap. And everybody says, well, you do things right or you do the right things. Well, figuring out what your right things are is actually efficiency at another level. You know, why are you here? You know, what's your bigger game? Where do you want to go? And therefore, when you come up with, okay, then I better be focused on different things. Yeah. That's an efficiency factor just taken to a, a new strata. So it really is about how do we get things done as efficiently, as effectively as possible. Well, first of all, you have to identify what it is you need to get done. So again, that's the two aspects of outcome and action. 
It's the zeros and ones of productivity. What are you trying to produce? And how do you allocate or reallocate your resources to make sure that happens? So outcome and action thinking, we weren't born doing that. Well, in a way we were. You know, I discovered that your frontal cortex starts to develop at age six months because as soon as you throw a tantrum, you're already into productivity mode. There's something I want, and I've discovered this is a way I can get it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? So there is something of, a, of an innate natural process of outcome and action thinking. It's just that the brain, our brains did not evolve to take that much further than about four things. Yeah, there's a thunderstorm coming. My kid is screaming at me. There may be a bear up there in that cave, and I need to light a fire. And that's about it. If you can't finish those the second you think of them, that's about the maximum number of things your brain could deal with. And now it can deal with all those very elegantly. You even can recognize that's a cave, you know, as opposed to vibrations of light and sound. You can recognize a thunderstorm. You can recognize all of that. that so our brain evolved to do very sophisticated stuff, but not to remember, remind, prioritize, or manage more than four things at once. So that's all I uncovered was an algorithm about how do we allow our brain to relax and let go of those jobs that it does not do very well so that it can go back to what it does very well, which is make intuitive choices off your options. But trying to remember your options, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that very well at all. So you could have fooled me, Matt. You know, these were little tiny epiphanies that I had over the years go, oh, wait, that's what this does. Oh, my God. That's why this works. Anyway, I think I, I diverted from maybe what your question was, but... No, that's great. I appreciate that. And one of the things I've been focusing on as my business has grown is trying to say no more often. And first of all, it's it's challenging. But second of all, when you put it in the frame of outcomes, then you know you you can just look at it and say, does this align with my outcome? Yes or no. And that's how I try. I try to look at it under that lens, but I'm curious what your framework is for saying no. Well, first of all, if you know what all your commitments are, it makes it a lot easier to say no. Most people haven't a clue how many things they've actually committed to. And once, if they implement GTD, they start to get a sense of how many things they've actually put in motion out there. And once you actually look at that, take a look at all those things it becomes a lot easier to say, gee, you know, that seems like a really cool thing, but I just don't have the bandwidth to give that the attention it probably deserves, which, by the way, is an elegantly political way to tell other people no. (laughs) That was Um, great. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, that's worth its weight in gold. But ultimately, you know, and again, I didn't make this up, but the five whys, you know, I need cat food. Why? I have a cat. Well, why do you want to give it food? Well, because I like my cat to be happy. Why? Well, a happy cat means that it's a lot easier for me to then relate to him or her, you know, in a fun way and kind of opens my heart when I come home and I see this cat and this cat jumps up on my lap. Cool. And why is that matter to you? Oh, well, because I like my heart open. I like to have this, you know, wonderful little living thing around me that doesn't judge me that that's, you know, yeah, yeah. And why does that matter? Because oh, I like to have an open heart. Why does that matter? Because I like to have an open heart. It just makes me more of who I am. Yay. So you can take anything anybody's doing and you can just walk it back up the Y ladder and you'll find out, okay, which horizon and which outcome are you after? 
you know, I'm after peace and freedom, you know, when I come home as opposed to and, and a way to debrief and decompress from, you know, a day of hard decision making or whatever. So, you know, outcome thinking and the why question is always a great question. Do you have a living room, Matt? Yes. Why? Why do I have a living room? Because I want to have a nice place to enjoy with friends and family. And do you do that in that room? Yes. Or do you do it in the kitchen or your den or the playroom or somewhere else? Well, occasionally in the kitchen, but in the living room mostly. Oh, good. Good for you. Most people don't live in their living room. Aha. Right? Why do you have a dining room? Most people have a dining room separate from their kitchen because of the old days of servants. Well, I'm glad if you make it a money that, that you can afford servants to then serve you from the kitchen and then into your dining room. But most people are like, well, why? That's why, you know, in the, most of the new domiciles, you know, they mix all that together. It's an open kitchen, dining room, din, whatever, because that is how people live these days. But most people don't even ask themselves, why do you have a desk? Why do you have that kind of bed? Why, you know, just ask the why about anything. And most people are fairly unconscious about all that stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with not figuring that out and not living in your living room. It's funny. I mean, a little sidebar story. I did a lot of work a few years ago on Wall Street with, you know, kids that were making gazillions of dollars more than I'd ever seen in my life. And they were buying these, you know, gorgeous houses out in New Jersey or in Connecticut or whatever. And a lot of them were taking these huge living rooms, you know, and just turning them into their office <laughs> because it had a lot more light than anywhere else. It was right next to the kitchen and they didn't live in their living room anyway. And oh, well, that's smart. So right. it's funny. When you put the why question to anything, you often come up with some very creative answers. Sure, sure. And just thinking of, from my own example, you know, my place here in Austin is really small. I don't spend that much time here because I'm traveling quite a bit. And it's, yeah, it's fairly, fairly open. There's, yeah, there's enough light, I would say. But I've practiced minimalism for a really long time and realized that, no, it's just a one-bedroom place. Uh, Two-bedroom, yeah, well, it would be nice. It's probably not going to go in there very often. <laughs> There's really only one bedroom that will get slept in uh, for 300 and something days of the year. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more of your thoughts on minimalism. Uh, you know, I accumulate as much stuff as I have room to accumulate. Minimalism is really about, I think most people are into minimalism because they don't want to be distracted based upon something else that they figure more important. Yes. So that's why people go cave and rice bowl, you know, because now I'm not going to have women dancing around me or TV or any of that other stuff that may be distracting, you know, and so that's minimalism simply says, get rid of the things that may distract me from what's important to myself. But so what? It's true. You know, you can condo-esque yourself, you know, Marie Kondo stuff. There's a go get rid of all yes. your surplus. I couldn't agree more. Come on, absolutely. Get rid of things that don't mean anything to you anymore. You know, Catherine and I give away books once we've read them, just so we keep our, you know, book inventory lean and mean. We give away clothes as soon as we buy any new ones. New ones, we always, you know, donate others, so we keep all that lean and mean. So, we, you know, I think that's a, a nice way to approach life in that way. But there's nothing wrong with having 143 pairs of shoes if you, that's what you like. What the heck, you know? So it's all about: Do you have attention on any of that? Does any of that distract you from what's important to you? Or does it just add to your expression? 
because I know a lot of people. You know, I know Paul Smith. I, mean, I was reading, you know, Paul Smith, the great designer in, in the UK, designs all kinds of creative socks for guys and, you know, all kinds of cool things. And he likes to keep his office just full of all kinds of stuffed animals and creative things and all kinds of things around it because he just likes that to help sort of inspire him in terms of his creative process. So is that minimal? Well, minimal meaning, yeah, he only he does that because it helps him do what's important to him. So if you need 43 paintbrushes, so you feel comfortable painting, minimalism would be, well, let me do it with only two paintbrushes. Well, you might learn something that way if you did that. But 43 may be what you really want. So I'd be very careful to say minimal means less. Yes, and I agree with what you're saying there. I shifted kind of my ideas on minimalism once I read a book called Essentialism. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this concept, but I think that touches more on what you're talking about. If more paintbrushes will help you create better work, then you should probably have more paintbrushes. Would you agree there? Yeah, I do. And Ismail Galimi, by the way, he's going to be a presenter at our GTD Summit in June. A very, very fun guy, very creative guy. And he's one of these guys, you know, his version of minimalism is he travels to like three or four cities regularly. So he just found a hotel in that city that he made agreements with them that he could keep a closet of clothes, keep another laptop, keep whatever in storage. And as soon as he got there, they knew exactly what room he wanted and they would just bring him all the stuff. So he never traveled with anything other than his briefcase. So in a way, that's essentialism. It's not like, you know, gee, he, you know, he's not in, this is not a rice bowl and cave kind of guy, right? And he also did, he also went through an exercise once where he just identified every single thing he owned, every single thing, every single, you know, file folder, every single desk, every single piece of furniture. He just wanted to identify how much stuff do I actually have? And he created that inventory. And he said, wow, that's really silly. And then what he did was he started to move into, what might be called the essentialism. I, I didn't read the book. I heard about it. But basically he said, look, I've got a camera and I've got about four or five lenses for this camera, but there's only one lens that I use 95% of the time. So he said, okay. So he got rid of all the other lenses. Actually, he got rid of all of them. He said, but that's the one lens I like. And he went and found the absolute best one of those. He absolutely could. wasn't cheap. Right? So this is not a guy who is into asceticism. This guy was into finding out which things really are meaningful to me. And let me just get the most elegant version of that. So I'm totally thrilled every time I use it. So if that's what essentialism means, I'd be a huge votary of it. No, it makes sense, especially when it comes to, yeah, the concepts that we're talking about here. I'm not actually too familiar with Ishmael, but I see him here on your website as one of the 36 speakers on the Getting Things Done Summit. A guy by the last name of McCown wrote this book that I was referring to uh, called Essentialism. Mm. But yeah, you, either way, yeah, it seems to make sense that whatever gives you the tools to be able to execute and again, framing things in outcome thinking, yeah, that definitely seems to make sense. I'd love to know how you actually ended up in Amsterdam. I assume that you're American, and I know Amsterdam is a great place to live from expats that I've talked to over there. But as I was telling you a little bit before, well, it sounds like we're both travelers. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear how you, you made the move across the Atlantic. We wanted to get out of the U.S.-centric mindset. 
So Catherine, my wife, and I both decided Europe would probably be the best way to do that. Could have been Kyoto because we're big Japanophiles. We love that too, but that's not very much the center of my universe. And we've been to Amsterdam two or three times. We sort of love the charm of the city, and it's such an eye candy city anyway. And it was a foreign enough country that had a foreign language, but everybody here speaks English. <laughs> so right. you know, wasn't that big a challenge then to do that. And we just fell in love with the city. And we, you know, we didn't know how long we'd stay here, but as soon as the longer we stayed here, the more we just fell in love with it. And, you know, I was an American cultural intellectual history major. So I was very much enthralled with the American thought process and American psyche and thought it was great. And then to discover that ultimately a lot of that started a few blocks from where I live now, that Amsterdam, you know, in the, the Netherlands itself was really the seat of the enlightenment. That was the first place where the individual took precedence over monarchy and church. And so this was really a, and so, you know, just getting into the history of why this was that way. And this still, especially now, these days, boy, what an oasis of global thinking and openness that this city is and, and this country is still, you know. And so very delighted to be here. And, uh, you know, we intend to stay. That's great. And of course, I'll mention for you that this is where you're, you're having this uh, Getting Things Done Summit, GTD Summit that I, I mentioned before. And uh, I actually wanted to ask you some questions here off of this GTD Summit site over there in, in Amsterdam. And there, there are things that I think the audience would really be interested in. And some of them are a little bit broad, but I'm curious as a Forgive me by saying an old school kind of guy. You seem like you just have your your methodology and your way of looking at life really rooted in some ancient practices. I mean, we're, we've talked about Zen and, and karate here, but you have a block at the summit about supercharging your productivity with technology. Now, this might not be your session that you are going to be the presenter, but I'd love to know what type of technology that you use as far as apps and smartphone, et cetera, uh, that help you implement your GTD methodology. Well, come on. If you know what you're doing, today is a great time to be alive. I mean, how many cool things do we have in our pockets? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. You know, come on, at least Google Maps. I mean, if nothing else, that's worth the price of admission, you know, just to be able to get around, especially when you're in a foreign country. Yeah. So just that. But frankly, Matt, you know, there really hasn't, from my perspective, there hasn't been much game-changing event in technology since the word processor and the spreadsheet. Uh, those were all game-changers, you know, and everything around those, relational databases and all of that. And, but frankly, most everything else just sped things up and added huge volume, right? So tell me something that you think was game-changing in terms of how you thought and how you worked and how you managed life other than something that just sped things up and made them more available to you and at hand. And not much, I'll bet. You might just think about that or ruminate that, but I'd be, I'd be curious if you had an answer to that other than the, God, you know, I'm old enough, Matt, to remember I had typewriter with erase tape Erase tape. I don't even know what that is. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you hit an E. It should have been an A. You have to take this little tape and you stick it in the typewriter and you hit over the E and it blanks it out. Oh, and wow. Could, and then you could backspace and hit an A. You're a young kid. So believe me, word processors changed that game. 
because the word processor actually functions much more like your brain functions. It likes to have ideas then later on figure out what to do with them. So you get to start to write drafts and then cut and paste and rearrange and whatever. But you know that's very new. But that was very game-changing because it allowed me to produce a lot more with a lot less effort. And that was a huge productivity game-changer. And obviously, you know, spreadsheets, I mean, VisiCalc all the way to, you know, Lotus 1, 2, 3, to Excel, all those things just changed. You know, there are probably 80% of the businesses of anybody listening to this are being run off of Excel right now. You don't need much more than that. But that was so such a big thing. And the relational databases, which is that's a version of what that is, yeah, those were big game changers. So those made a huge difference in terms of productivity, in terms of our ability to get more stuff done more elegantly, more intelligently than before, before in, in an exponential way, but not much since then. Little pieces of this mind mapping software, yeah, that's that's cool. And you know, there and and snag it, wow, you can cut and paste things off their screen. Yeah. So there's a lot of really cool stuff out there right now, but not much else. Otherwise it just sped it up. It just allowed you to communicate a lot faster and easier with things and also <laughs> created a lot more inputs that you're gonna have to deal with. Yeah, I mean that makes sense as far as I mean, even a, a Google Docs, right, with the word processing, probably at some point a writer would have had to print that, that off on their typewriter and mailed it Pony Express style to their editor. And right. uh, But now, yeah, everything has just accelerated the pace at which we can communicate, but also then be inundated with notifications on those Google Docs, when someone resolves a comment, you get a little thing somewhere. Right. I don't know. Well, it's, it's like, do you, do you want your private cabin you know, in the mountains so you can reflect and meditate? Or you want to have everybody in the world be at your front door 24-7 in your private cabin? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So you, you have some version of those polarities that you're going to have to choose between because all of that's pretty available. Right. I mean, you have everybody literally in your pocket. And as soon as you open that thing up, you just, again, you're getting inundated with notifications. Someone liked your photo on Instagram and someone made some silly comment on Facebook and here are a bunch of more important stuff on Slack that appear urgent and your emails and yeah, with everybody, everybody gets the point, I'm sure. I, Matt, I frankly love all that stuff, you know, frankly. One of the first things in the morning is I play, you know, words with friends across the world because I have people in California playing me and, uh, you know, I'm in Amsterdam. So they get to play while I'm sleeping and I get to play while they're sleeping. You know, and that's fun. Kind of sparks my brain in the morning while I'm having coffee. You know, and that's cool. Then I check Instagram to see, you know, sort of my close network of folks and what's new and cool about what they're doing and see pictures of their kids and where they are right now. I mean, how fun is that? You know, what a great time to be alive that you could do that and you have all that available. I just don't make that a huge, God, have to do that or use that as a way to avoid other things I might need to be doing. To me, it's like a cocktail party. It's like, hey, kind of wander in, wander out. It's fun to do. Sometimes I don't check any of those things for days. So it depends on, on what you're doing. But golly, what a great time. You know, and I wasted time talking to my girlfriend when I was 14 on the telephone. <laughs> you know? and, I, and I wasted time thumbing through the yellow pages in the phone book because that was so fun. And I wasted time, you know, staring at and looking at bullet boards at college or in the laundromat, you know, the interesting stuff people posted up there. And there's nothing, that's all this is. 
they're just bulletin boards. They're just yellow pages. They're just, you know, phone calls from your girlfriend. It's just that that's all available 24 seven and worldwide <laughs> and in your pocket. You know, that's what's different. Right, right. Uh, how do you have self-control over these things? Do you have any practices that you utilize? I mean, even as simple as putting the thing in airplane mode. So, and maybe you have the self-control where it doesn't need to be on airplane mode and uh, you could just set it down and not look at it for three hours as you're focused on the task at hand. Well, let me go back to championing the GTD methodology. The more you do a weekly review and see your whole game lift up in that little balloon and, and look around your life on some consistent basis operationally and keep in touch with all the things. So you're, you're making sure that nothing's falling through a crack somewhere. gives you a lot more freedom to just follow your intuitive hunches and do what you need to do or what you feel like doing. You just need to make sure you're not missing anything. So once you have a system that allows you to trust that, hey, here are all the errands I need to run. Here are all the things I need to talk to my wife about. Here are all the things that I, here are all the projects I need to manage. And here's the due deadlines on those things coming toward me. Do I need to block some time or not? And once a week, if you're doing that kind of intelligent operational executive thinking, then it gives you a lot more freedom to just do whatever you feel like doing. If you're not doing that, then all those things you feel like doing are probably more of an avoidance than a recreation. Yeah, that seems about right. I was looking again through your itinerary you have lined up or your schedule you have lined up for the summit here. And one of your presenters is Charles Duhigg from uh, The Power of Habit, I believe is the name of his book. And everybody loves habits. I don't know if this is his session or not, but uh, you have something on the habits of high performers. And you just alluded to some pretty good habits uh, that people can implement. And I'd love to know what type of habits you might highlight being the most important for our listeners to make sure that they're implementing in their life in addition to reflecting and that weekly review you just talked about? Yeah, there are two big ones. First of all, keep things, everything out of your head. Huge habit change for most people. Everything out of your head. You should get a divorce. I need to fix my tooth. I need to hire a vice president. I need to look into whether I should get a different cell phone service. I need to research, you know, which school is going to be the best school for my kids to get into in the fall. You know, we need to handle, you know, the next holiday coming up and where we're going and what we're doing. Yada, yada, yada. So just unloading all of that out of your head. Your head is just such a crappy office. It's not the place to hold more than four things. So getting those out of your head is the first major thing people need to do. So write it down, record it, stick it somewhere. You're best off writing it down. Recording it, you have to listen back to it again, but writing it down, it'll be in your face. So making a list or just writing those on separate pieces of paper and having a physical in-tray that you throw those things into, that is such a huge habit that will help people a ton. You know, everybody listening to this has at some point felt overwhelmed or confused and made a list and felt better. So if you reverse engineered that, you'd never keep anything in your head the rest of your life because nothing changed in your world to make you feel better except how you were engaged with your world. And the key element was to externalize that stuff, not keep it in your head. And that's a huge, huge habit for most people to change. So that's number one is get that stuff out of your head. Number two, don't let that stuff lie there forever. You need to pick all those things up that you got out of your head and decide what's the next action on it. 
is that an actionable thing? And if so, what's the next action? Is that a phone call to make, a website to surf, something to talk to my life partner about, something to buy at the hardware store? What is the next thing if I had nothing to do but that? What would I need to do? And so, you know, those are the two critical elements. If you want to add a third, I'd say, well, if that one action won't finish whatever this thing is that you had your attention on, what's the project? What's the outcome you're focused on? Oh, I need to give mom a birthday party. Oh, we need to redo our porch. Oh, I need to find out, research whether or not we are going to hire a VP of marketing or a VP of finance first, yada, yada, yada. So outcome and action thinking, that sort of clarification process applied to the things that have your attention. Those three things are really the, (laughs) if you've got those down, you don't need to listen to this. You don't need to talk to me. You're on. But those are, you're not born doing those things. You know, and this becomes, especially as your life is more subtle and sublime and complex, you know, and fast changing, then these things need to become habitual behaviors. And they're not for most people. I know I've spent thousands of hours with some of the best and brightest walking them through what I just said. And they go, oh, my God, you know, they did not have this as a habit yet. And it increased hugely their productivity, their space, their ability to be present with whatever they were doing. God, yeah, I, I can imagine just thinking about the value that I've gained implementing some of these habits. And as a leader or, or an entrepreneur or a manager, what's the best way that people can start to teach others to be more productive and focus on the right things? Make sure they're doing it as a model. So that's the key thing. People will sniff authenticity or inauthenticity very fast. So if you're authentically saying, hey, I'm cool. I'm leaving here. I'm leaving work at five or six or whatever. I'm cool. I've got all my stuff placed. I've got everything in clear. I'm ready to just watch my girl play soccer with nothing in my mind. And I don't need my smartphone anymore you know, for the rest of the evening. People are going, God, how do you do that? Say, well, I don't know if you're old enough yet, but you know, let me tell you. So modeling it is the first thing that you need to be able to do so that you can come and you don't have to be an expert at this. You can just say, look, I started to implement this. This makes a huge difference to me. Here's what I'm doing. You know, how would you do that? So there's lots of ways you can start to communicate this stuff. And it's not about some sort of cult about GTD. It's really about just best practices. You know, are you starting your meeting with going, okay, we have now 55 minutes by the end of 55 minutes. What do we want to have true? What's their outcome, desired outcome for the meeting? And you don't end discussions or things that sort of open up in that meeting without going, so wait a minute, what did we decide about that? Where do we park it? What's the next step? You know, and who's got it? So outcome and action thinking is something that just can be embedded as a lexicon and as a cognitive thought process inside of a family, inside of a culture, inside of a company, inside of a team. And so just those things themselves will improve, you know, the environment for anybody and move at least to some degree, you know, you and the people around you up the food chain. Great. Yeah, leading by example is so important when it comes to building a culture, as you said. Before I let you go, I'll ask one more follow-up question to that before we, before we start to wrap up. But, you know, I'm the type of person who is not productive in the late afternoon. And if I've been working all day straight. I like to leave by four o'clock and 
beat a little bit of traffic or I don't even know why I say that. I, I, don't, I ride a bike. There's no traffic in the bike lane. But uh, you know, I, I like to get out a little bit early and still have some daylight in the wintertime or go have a life outside of work. And as the leader of an organization, when I leave first, I often have this hint of guilt where, oh, geez, I should be the first one in and last one out. And I often am the first one in. And everybody knows that, yeah, if I'm not working by 745, there's people are probably wondering what the heck happened to me. (laughs) But how do you make that explicitly clear that, I mean, I've really made it uh, a point to study this stuff and make sure that I am saying no enough and focusing on what's important uh, to me so that I can create this balance that we've been talking about. So what's the best way to communicate these intentions, uh, if you will? Get roles and accountabilities clear and good metrics are ways to evaluate whether people are fulfilling roles and their accountabilities. Wait till you have a total virtual company like I do. I have no idea where anybody is. You know, come on, my head of master trainer certification is in Medellin, Colombia. You know, my head guy that manages our website, our digital world is in, actually, he just, <laughs> he just moved to Colorado. Right? Our sort of legal person who manages a lot of that stuff is in Monterey, California area. You know, and my wife and me, we're in Amsterdam. I have no attention, never had really, on what people are doing, where they are doing it. I just care about whether something happens that they've been held accountable for. So if that's real clear, why should anybody care about anything else? But I understand what you're saying because, you know, the culture oftentimes, you know, people want to see people busy or they want to make sure that they're not sloughing off or whatever. Well, how do you know if they're sloughing off or not? Well, you because you haven't defined the accountabilities that they're responsible for and have some sort of, you know, measure about whether they're fulfilling that or not. So those are the key issues there. Great. Yeah, I, I certainly see that need for, as you said, accountability and checks and balances. And that's all it really comes down to. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. It's a real honor to be able to learn firsthand from someone like you and uh, hopefully inspire the audience here to take their own productivity to the next level. Uh, I know you have uh, this event coming up. And uh, of course, again, your book is Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. And you have that new release from 2015 that I'd highly recommend. Uh, But could you tell everybody a little bit more about your summit in, in case they do want to join? Sure. This is not an annual event. We did a kind of a one-off thing of this 10 years ago in San Francisco just because GTD had started to become this bit of a phenomenon that was spreading with all kinds of really cool, smart, sophisticated people at multiple different levels were engaging with it and being champions of it. So we said, well, let's, let's raise a flag and see if we can bring people together that might share this consciousness. So we did. We had about 30 great presenters, and we had about 350, 400 people that showed up in San Francisco 10 years ago. I said, I'm not going to do another one. People gave me the advice, hey, this was such a unique event. Wow, this was so cool to have all these people come together who had this sort of common denominator. Don't do another one. So I decided not to do another one. But then 
you know, then again, the world changed and suddenly, well, not suddenly, but over the last 10 years, we have wound up creating partnerships around the world with people whose businesses are built now on spreading the GTD, getting things done methodology, which we've spent a lot of time developing a global curriculum for that. So I said, okay, you know, at age 73, it's about time for me to, you know, I think I should probably do another one and let's raise the flag again. And then as you'll see, if anybody goes to gtdsummit.com, you'll see, you know, and these presenters, I've got now over 40 presenters who are coming from around the world from all different kinds of professions. Very cool folks that will inspire you given their short stories they're going to be able to share and the networking we're going to be able to pull together. So, you know, it's one of those where two or more are gathered. This is going to be a, quite a magical event for two days in Amsterdam, which is my adopted city, which I absolutely love. And it's kind of the center of the world now, given our work. So June 2021, uh, we're going to do that here. So go check it out on the site and see if it rings your bell. Would love to have any of you who are feeling inspired or want to have a life memorable event. This is not going to be in some annual event. This is probably going to be the last one of these, the only one of these of this sort that I'll do. So that's what that is. Thanks for asking. No, you're, you're very welcome. Thank you again for being on. And we will link anything that we referenced up in the show notes on under30ceo.com for uh, everybody to, to get all that info. So David, thanks again. Appreciate it. Matt, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. And best wishes to all of you listening to this. Thank you.